My next guest is the author and political scientist who teaches at the School of Politics and International Relations for the University of Kent and who is often seen on camera outside the Houses of Parliament giving his tea leaf readings of the country's current constitutional crisis, Matt Goodwin. Matt, it's great to have you on the podcast. You've chosen to meet at Rowley's Steakhouse on German Street in St. James's. Why here? Well, I've always liked this restaurant. I Usually when I'm in London, I work around the corner at Chatham House where I'm a senior visiting fellow. I think German Street is classic old London. It's one of my favorite places to hang out. And this particular restaurant is quite well known. They've got a, a deal here where it's sort of endless French fries. You know, it's one of their little gimmicks. But if you look at the history of this street, you know, really interesting things happen down here. Firstly, it's primarily famous for fashion and throughout the ages people have come down particularly men to get suits and so on margaret thatcher dennis thatcher went on their first dates on this street just down the corner a famous french restaurant which has now turned into uh, churchill's uh, uh, shoe shop and for me i mean it's also you know it's club land so you've got a lot of the uh, various members clubs spotted around the area where i give quite a few talks and things and westminster is just across the park so i mean for me this is this is real London. I mean, this is old world London, and that's why I love it. And you've been busy in Stockholm recently giving talks on your latest book, co-authored with Roger Eatwell, National Populism, The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy. It's a highly readable, highly important book with which I'm keen for us to imagine what the next year to five years could look like, given where we are in the trajectory of the movement. And because things move so fast now, I suspect you've spent every morning of the past year thumbing through your Twitter feed with your toes curled, worrying that any sudden turn might upend the book's core premise. So tell us, what is the book's core premise and how you think it's fared in reality since it was published? So I think the key macro question that we ask, really, which is a question that I'm asked a lot, particularly by folks in the city and elsewhere, is when you look at these events that we've had, which have really rocked liberal democracy, Trump, Brexit, populists in Europe, to what extent do those moments reflect the fact that we are leaving a period of political volatility and disruption and change? Or to what extent do those moments actually signal that we are entering into a new, more volatile, fragmented political world? And I think it's that framework, which is quite simplistic in a way, but gets us into the debates about what people think is happening across Europe and across North America. So if you think that these moments reflect that we are leaving a period of relative political stability and that actually what's coming up is, is going to be quite permanent, then you probably think like I do that the deep currents that are underpinning these movements are really going to be with us for certainly the rest of our lives, if not longer. But if instead you think that this is just a quite a short-term fleeting protest that's anchored in generational change, that this is about angry old white men then you're probably won over by arguments that you read in the Financial Times and The Economist that say ultimately this is about demographic change, that it's, it's about generational replacement. Unfortunately, I think that view, which has won a lot of pundits and you know, is dominant in much of the media narrative because it's very convenient, I think the reason it's convenient is because it allows people to avoid dealing with the actual grievances that people have about the economic and the social and the political settlement. I think it allows people to say, well, we don't need to think about what caused Brexit because all the Brexiteers are going to die soon, which, by the way, is also inaccurate. 
Um, and it allows, I think, a lot of folks on the liberal left to get away with not having to think about how to fix and reform the existing settlements. So the reason that Roger and I wrote this book is because we were basically sick and tired of a lot of misleading narratives and misleading stereotypes uh, doing the rounds. And we wanted to draw together about 30 years of evidence and research from the social sciences and try and tell people actually what was really going on, but also force us to deal with the awkward fact that actually none of this stuff is going to, go, is going to be going away anytime soon. And we may well have to learn to live with populism rather than assume that it's a fleeting moment in the history of liberal democracy. We should probably acknowledge the moment uh, you appeared on TV in 2017 eating a page out of your previous book, which wrongly predicted the outcome of the last general election. I, I just want to add on that, by the way. I was the only <laughs> yeah. political forecaster who stood up after that election and said, I got it slightly wrong after everybody basically got everything wrong with the exception of a few folks at YouGov and uh, a couple of other people. So whatever happens after this, we can't say that you won't admit fault. But you know, the funny, the interesting thing is when you look at Europe and you look at populism and you look at the direction of travel, what I often find is that a lot of people don't want to think seriously and deal with the fact that we're in for a long-term political realignment. So one of the first things I did after that 2017 election was go back to basics and say, okay, what did I get wrong about that two points with the Labour vote? And I've spent the last year looking at how people think about Jeremy Corbyn and Corbynomics. And a conclusion of that research is Corbynomics is a lot more popular than people think. And the reason it's a lot more popular than people think is because I think a lot of voters are looking for a more economically protectionist, interventionist message that they're not getting from the mainstream parties currently. So if there was an election tomorrow, I mean, I'll say this publicly on your, your podcast, I would expect Labour to emerge as the largest party. There we are. You heard it here first. Okay, now we get a potted history of national populism in the beginning chapters of the book, which bring home the fact that this rift between democratic elites and organised dissent from the bottom up is a recurring theme in Western democracy. We get names like Huey Long and George Wallace coming up, Enoch Powell and others. What importantly distinguishes national populism of the past from what we see today in your view? Well, I think um, one of the temptations over the last 10 years or so, maybe longer, has been to equate what's happening now with the 1930s. I think that comparison is deeply problematic for a number of reasons. If you actually go and look at the empirical evidence on who voted for the fascists and the Nazis to begin with, it often wasn't the people who were getting hit by the crisis. The second is, if you look at the political parties that we have today, they are fundamentally different from the interwar fascist and uh, Nazi party. They are not revolutionary, right? What is fascism? Fascism was a revolutionary political creed that wanted to overturn democracy and liberalism and effectively invest the state and the national community in this idea of a new man or new woman. It was looking forward, not back, and it was revolutionary, not reactionary. And what I would suggest that we're seeing in Europe today is actually something fundamentally different, that I think liberals have forgotten some of their key achievements. One of them is being that we have effectively tamed quite a lot of these parties, that they are not as anti-democratic as they were in earlier decades. We've got a lot of evidence to show that 
national populist parties that are anti-democratic or which are blatantly anti-Semitic or which are blatantly racist tend to do very poorly at elections. That is a triumph for liberal democracy. The other thing that I think we've seen is that these parties now, in fact over the last year, have had to accept that they they really need to moderate some of their key policy positions. So in France we've seen Marine Le Pen say she doesn't want to exit the European Union anymore. The Sweden Democrats have said they don't want to exit the European Union anymore. And we've seen these parties gradually distance themselves from the statements that Jean-Marie Le Pen or Jörg Haider or Umberto Bossi would have got away with in the 1980s and 1990s, but which today are seen as being beyond the pale. So for me, the comparisons are completely different. I'd be happy to test this if we were to meet in 25 years and look back on this moment in our political history... All the books that are coming out now, the death of democracy, the collapse of democracy, the the revival of fascism, the rise of totalitarianism, this endless catastrophizing, I don't think is going to look particularly sophisticated 20 or 30 years from now. Yeah, I suppose one of the most notable differences between national populism of then and now is the way in which the message travels and the extent to which the medium has become that message. So, for example, you know, you have to wonder whether with Donald Trump's use of Twitter being the main vehicle for his presidency, he has, in a sense, transformed Twitter, or whether or not it's actually Twitter surreptitiously containing his presidency. How much do you think we owe the current disruptive power of national populism to the technological changes that have produced social media? I had a really big debate about this in uh, Sweden with a professor who specializes in misinformation. You know, and I think there's a very seductive argument out there that goes a little bit like this, that social media has facilitated the spread of misinformation, that through Twitter and Facebook we've basically exposed a large number of voters to dodgy stories, dodgy statistics, misleading claims... And that has resulted in increased support for national populism. The reason that I struggle with that, okay, and while accepting that it might be exacerbating some of the underlying divides, the reason that I I struggle with that as a causal factor is simply because I've been working on this for a long time. I was working on some of the most successful populist movements that Europe has seen long before we had Facebook, long before we had Twitter, and long before we knew that those platforms were low-trust platforms, that people generally, only about 30% of people, tend to trust what they read on those platforms. So when I see the reaction that we're seeing today, which is, whether through Cambridge Analytica, whether through the debate about Facebook and Donald Trump, that these platforms are having seismic effects on election outcomes by exposing people to misinformation. I'm completely willing to accept the idea that they're exacerbating underlying divides, but I am completely um, reluctant to this idea that these are sort of monocausal mechanisms in their own right. Yes, you refer to narratives that focus on 
the source of financial flows which funded the Vote Leave campaign as comfort blanket theories that try to give a wholesale explanation, as you've said, of events without taking seriously the other factors at play. On the one hand, I can see why you've chosen to describe these revelations as comforting, because many do genuinely want to believe that it's only a matter of time before the truth is set free and we're merely living in the moments before that. Yet I would also say that there is absolutely nothing comforting whatsoever about these allegations for those who've watched Carol Cadwallada, for example, go deep dive into this thing or have heard Vote Leave whistleblower Shamir Sani's account of working for the project. Doesn't the mere implication of these stories make it a mistake to claim that they only matter as much as the next factor? So I think that the debate about electoral integrity is an incredibly important one. And I think some of the work that some of my colleagues have been doing around how we can make democracy more transparent, more accountable, and social media in particular, we think about regulating uh, that more effectively. We should be absolutely looking into it. Much of the coverage that I've seen since 2016 has implied that effectively Britain voted for Brexit, America voted for Trump because of misinformation or social media platforms. I think that is deeply misleading. If you look even at most of the studies that we have on the Trump vote, most of the studies that we have on the Brexit vote, they converge on the idea, which I completely agree with, that these moments were rooted in long-term structural shifts within American and British societies and that they were really anchored in currents that long predate social media. I think we absolutely need to be monitoring it and exploring it in more detail, but I'm very hesitant about this idea that this is a really key driver of what's going on. Here we have two entrecot steaks, one rare, one medium rare. We have some spinach, some green beans, and some french fries. So I take it you are a steak fan, Matt? I do like a good steak, thank you very much. And this place is great for them. And endless french fries, so you're going to absolutely keep eating and eating and eating. That's a wonderful <laughs> thing. All right, let's tuck in. Beautiful. Um, ketchup mustard would be great, actually. I'll take some Dijon mustard. You tweeted a figure recently from the National Center of Social Research that says only 8% of people in the UK identify with a political party, but that now 40% of Britons identify with some form of Brexit identity. What was your reaction to this? Well, I think that particular finding goes to show, I think, firstly, how quickly we are taking on new political identities, that the Brexit moment in British politics has really brought to the fore value divides that we're now giving names to. I think it's quite remarkable that our traditional political identities, which we already knew were being weakened over the last 30 years, but are now having to coexist with these new identities that are layered on top around whether you are, in broad terms, liberal internationalist, pro-EU, or whether you're more conservative, um, focused on hierarchy, focused on stability, uh, focused on group conformity and, and pro-Brexit. And I think, you know, what's interesting about Britain at the moment, a couple of things. Number one is we've never seen the mobilization of a pro-EU identity before. 
yes, there have always been, there's been about 10% of the country that said, yeah, I feel European, yeah, maybe rising to about 14 to 15%. But we've never seen the active mobilization of that. And that's what we're going to see now. And I would suggest through probably the likely European Parliament elections that we'll have, which is we may now find that that a pro-Europeanness becomes a more integral feature of British politics. But at the same time, we are also strengthening Euroscepticism in British politics and we're creating a new generation of Eurosceptics that I think will be more significant than the Maastricht revolts of the early 1990s. That's fascinating because that stat clearly shows that Brexit has come to define politics in Britain. But what you're suggesting is that Europe will in fact come to define politics. And that, in a sense, is the bitter irony of the entire Brexit debate, isn't it? I think there are lots of sad ironies of our Brexit debate. One is that the referendum was supposed to resolve the Europe question and it's ended up underlining the Europe question. Another is that it was supposed to address populism and instead it's likely to put populism on steroids. Another is that it was supposed to close the divides in our society and instead it's exacerbated the divides in our society. And I think we'll look back in years to come and really regret the way that we've handled this particular moment. But what we may yet come to live with are these new identities and what's striking to me at least is when you listen to Remainers talking about Europe or talking about why they feel the way they feel often it's not actually to do with what's happening in the EU it's quite a symbolic quite a diffuse sense of you know internationalism um, transnational solidarity uh, cosmopolitanism it's not actually based on what's happening in the eu whereas i think for many on the leave side that identity is very much fused with this notion that the eu institutions freedom of movement eu federalism if you want to call it that poses a fundamental slash existential threat to British way of life, right? And I think that's what gives the Leave side a sense of potency. There's a quote from the book that struck me. I think it's from the third chapter from the now president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, talking, I guess, in the late 90s about the authorities' approach to passing legislation. He says, quote, We decree something, then float it and wait some time to see what happens. If no clamor occurs and no big fuss follows, because most people do not grasp what has been decided, we continue step by step until the point of no return is reached. This really is an unfortunate quote because even to sympathetic ears, it epitomizes the aloof, manipulative, overreaching stance in which the EU has been relentlessly portrayed by its critics for decades. Has the EU simply been consistently poor at communicating itself to people of its member states? What's been the most significant missed opportunity? Well, I think if you were being as sympathetic as you could be, you you would say the EU has always been good at muddling through one crisis after another, that it was, you know, in a a sense, born a mid-crisis, was shaped a mid-crisis, and even today continues to evolve... Uh, a mid-crisis. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic on one hand to, to those kinds of comments because, you know, the original idea at least is what political scientists called the 
permissive consensus that elites would basically make up their minds about European integration and they would decide where that was headed and only if citizens kicked up a fuss would they be forced to sort of adapt their policies and change their approach. Now, most political scientists today will tell you the permissive consensus is dead, that over the last 20 years, uh, citizens across Europe, as reflected in the rise of populism, as reflected in the rise of Euroscepticism, as reflected in the votes that we've had at various referendums, um, that they are no longer permissive, right? That they are much more willing to challenge their political elites. And I think that is certainly what we saw with the Brexit vote and what we've seen and what we will see with the European elections at the end of May. So it is unfortunate that the leaders of the European Union, I think, come across in a somewhat dismissive, neglectful, self-serving way. But that is ultimately wrapped up with what we know about the European Union, that there is a fundamental divide between the leaders and the voters. And I suspect that will continue. Now, it's been about a month since the Christchurch mosque shootings took place in New Zealand. And with that in mind, I want to ask you what your view is on the relationship between national populism and racism. Because part of the purpose of the book is to step back and address the fact that the term national populism has been used to incorporate pretty much every kind of fascist doctrine without any attention to nuance. Yet to argue that national populism isn't about race but has simply been hijacked by those for whom it is simply raises the question, well, why does the key fit so easily for the hijackers? Well, I spent three or four years interviewing right-wing extremists, looking at the motives and the narratives that kept them involved um, and they were rem remarkably similar to what I then saw in the Norway and the um, New Zealand attacks which was a complete obsession with this idea of ethnic genocide complete obsession with this idea of you know, differential birth rates being evidence of that that my group is not growing as quickly as other groups and therefore my group will soon be under threat but also a profound sense of moral obligation that if I don't do something now, it will be too late and I won't be able to save future generations, which is definitely something that runs through all of the manifestos and the narratives that I've read. This is sort of a Walter Mitty fantasy, isn't it? I think it, I think it is a fantasy, but I think, it's, it, I think it's a view of the world that is being fed and legitimized by the arguments that we're having in our politics. I mean, if you have mainstream party leaders that are saying, as they are in Germany, that Islam has no, has no place in Europe, that multiculturalism has failed, um, then it's actually not too far to go, if you're that way inclined, to say, well... What I'm reading on these internet forums is correct. So what I'm reading in these blogs and in these more extreme internet locations is pretty on point with where people are at. So I, I do think it's a serious issue. And the tendency to dismiss all of these people as being crazed individuals, I, 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 my personal view is I think in a way that sort of distracts us from understanding grasping the extent to which our political culture is partly legitimizing some of these claims. 
you know, and I think that's where we might need to reflect a little more. Well, I suppose one of the ways that national populism maps onto fascism is that there is a certain degree of admiration of power that goes into both. We saw this in the US with the way that people looked up to Donald Trump as the ideal American businessman. And in this country in particular, it's been remarkable to see public figures like Jacob Rees-Mogg, a man who is unquestionably part of the elite, lionized by the same people who voted to shake up the establishment. I think that's a very interesting observation. I think the thing I would add is, whereas historically... You know, that notion of power, I think we looked up to power. I think in a strange reversal, national populists today are looking down at power. And I think they see power as very much coming from this notion of popular sovereignty, popular will, the voice of the majority, the silent majority, the forgotten French, as Le Pen would say, or the community that has consistently been marginalised and neglected. So in a strange reversal, and again, this goes back to your earlier point about the distinctions between the interwar period and today, very few national populists are worshipping the state. If anything, what they're trying to do is erode trust in the state. So the deep state, the civil service that's in cahoots with politicians to undermine Brexit. I mean, the whole idea now is undermine the authority of the state and the power is not coming so much from the future conception of the state but is coming from below which is from the people which is the direct democratic model which puts populists at loggerheads with liberals now liberals have their own tension to reconcile which is if you want to live in a liberal democracy that respects and values individual rights then you're going to have to accept that sometimes the citizens are going to give you a result that you don't like and you're going to have to live with that and adapt to that if you do not you will push citizens further and further away and into the arms of direct democrats who say well actually let's just organize society as much as we can along the lines of the majority versus minorities which is not a place generally that we want to be i I think we want to be in a place where um different groups from all parts of society are in the middle and we're bargaining and we're compromising and we're negotiating that to me is the the true essence of democracy okay it's too early for you to eat another book just yet though I'm certain that would be infinitely more amusing to listen to on a podcast than watch on TV. Um, So would you happily share with the listeners your hunch about where the upcoming European elections are heading? Well, I think the European Parliament elections at the end of May are going to be very difficult for the European Union. Uh, I think if you look at the latest projections, the two main parties are forecast to, for the first time, get less than half of all available seats. Now, it may be that the inclusion of the UK actually allows the mainstream parties to avoid that. But either way, we're going to see some very strong results for a variety of Eurosceptic anti-establishment parties. Uh, The Lega in Italy, the AFD in Germany, the Alternative for Germany, the Danish People's Party, the Sweden Democrats, Vox in Spain, the Sweden, uh, the um, uh, Brexit Party here uh, here in the UK, 
uh, Forum for Democracy in the Netherlands, Fidesz in Hungary, Law and Justice in Poland. I think these are all going to have decent, if not record, results at these elections. Now, the end result of that will be a European Parliament that is um, more fragmented, that has a larger number of ideologically distinctive parties trying to somehow coalesce and get decisions through. So I do a lot of work with business. Business says they want the EU to have strong, clear, coherent leadership. I don't think that is what we're going to see coming from the European Parliament in the near future. I think instead, not only will we see national populists doing well, but also a variety of other challenges doing well. German, Greens, the Citizens' Party in Spain, Macron's en marche, Five Star in Italy. And all of this to me, in a way, you know, I'm a big fan of Peter Mayer, the political scientist who wrote a brilliant book called Ruling the Void. Uh, and, 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 And Peter Mayer argued that, you know, in a way, what we're seeing is kind of a revitalization of democracy, We want people turning out, we want them voting, and we want them participating. But right now, they're also voting for parties that we haven't really been used to seeing. And, you know, they're not all bad parties. Some of them want more environmentalism, some of them want more of a say for citizens. But the European Parliament that emerges from these elections will be a fundamentally more diverse, interesting um, representative parliament than the one that we've had previously Matt Goodwin, it's been a pleasure Thank you for having me and it's been a real pleasure to uh, be on the podcast <laughs>